0: Tonight's Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 8. It's found on page 4 of your bulletin. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, And every mountain and hill be made low. Then uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God.
1: Good evening, Grace Downtown. Evening. I'm so glad to be back. I'll tell you what, every time I get to come back, it's such an encouragement. Would you need to get something out of the cabinet? Yeah, no, we're gonna just you got some re- snacks in there? Okay. Every time I get to come back to Grace Downtown, it is such an encouragement to see faces that I have known for years, to see new faces, and to see the way that the Lord has been faithful to this community, as this community has birthed two other congregations. It's just a sign to me of the Lord's generosity to his people when they give in faith, because Town, Town gave people in faith, gave money in faith, and it's such an encouragement to me to see how the Lord is looking out for y'all because of the way that you gave so generously. So it's good to be with you all. I am going to be Uh, leading us off for our Advent series. But before I do, I would love for you to join me for a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. We are thankful, Lord, that all through the history of the church, you have proven that you draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And Lord, I pray that you would do that again tonight. I pray that you would encourage your people, that you would comfort your people, I pray especially for our friends in here this evening who are still wrestling through faith and doubts and questions and so much to consider. Lord, we are so grateful that they are here and there is no other place that we'd rather they be than here with us tonight. And we ask, Lord, that you would meet them in this time, that you would maybe give them a new perspective on this whole thing, that you would pique their curiosity, about what it means to believe in the gospel and what it means to belong to God. We ask that you would encourage all of us, Lord, with the burdens, the trials that we're facing. We pray that this evening you would give us a word of comfort. So Lord, take my five loaves and two fish, bless it, multiply it, and feed your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. What comes to mind for you When you hear the word comfort, what comes to mind for you when you hear the word comfort? For many modern people, this word conjures up a wide variety of images and experiences. We talk about comfort food and the satisfaction that can come from a plate of fried chicken, a bowl of gumbo, or some meatloaf and mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm, I got a witness out there. <laughs> we use the language of comfort zone to describe when we're in a place of familiarity and security. We use the language of creature comforts to describe the material items we feel like we need in order to be happy and content. Advertisers use what they call comfort advertising in order to sell a wide variety of products. You can go to the liquor store and get Southern Comfort. If you're traveling you can stay in a Comfort Inn hotel and when it's time to rest in the Comfort Inn you can lay on the bed and comfort, cover covered up with a comforter. For many moderns comfort is depicted in coming home from a long day of work getting a glass of wine sitting in front of a crackling fireplace and just breathing a sigh of relief. According to popular notions, comfort connects us to all that is warm, feel-good, nostalgic, and pleasing. And I, I raise all of these different expressions of the theme of comfort in our age because it makes a very important point. It helps us to see that many of our notions when it comes to comfort, are pretty shallow. We we have a pretty thin account of comfort. And it might not seem like a big deal, but the reason why that is a big deal is because our shallow notions of comfort actually make real comfort elusive for us. It feels like our language around comfort, it is... It dims it down. It it dumbs it down. Even though we are surrounded by the language and the subject of comfort, we often feel like comfort is slipping through our fingers. Where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn? advent season, as Pastor Glenn said, the Grace DC Network pastors are going to be working through our advent series in a beautiful passage of scripture, and that is Isaiah chapter 40. And this this passage is beautiful because it speaks to those who are living through the tensions, the trials, and the difficulties of this world. This passage speaks to those who are longing for comfort. And as we kick off our Advent series today, the prophet Isaiah gets us started with a word of comfort to God's people. And what we're going to see in this passage is something really important, and it's this. If real comfort is going to come to us, then it must confront all that is wrong with life. Real comfort deals with all the things that are wrong and broken and messed up about life not just our own individual lives, but our life in this world. It deals with the evil. It deals with the sadness, the suffering, the anxieties, the tragedies. Real comfort sustains in the face of all these things. So we're going to approach our passage for tonight through two points as we consider the message of comfort and the ministry of comfort. So let's look at our first point as we consider the message of comfort. Prophets in the Old Testament were known as covenant mediators, which is to say that the work of the prophets was to help God's people to live within the bounds of God's rule of life. And any time a prophet showed up on the scene... Typically, what had happened was Israel had departed from the covenant. And so the prophets would come and they would issue warnings and threats about the departure from God and what that resulted in. And many people, when they read the Old Testament, they get this mistaken notion that God is somehow mean or curmudgeon or peevish. But I want you to think about the warnings like this. The warnings are like if you were driving down the road and you saw a sign that said bridge ends in a thousand feet. Now, you wouldn't look at that sign and say, these Department of Transportation people can't judge me. They can't tell me what to do. Right? Right. No, no. And you wouldn't judge them to be mean or harsh. No, you would actually see it as a a sign of kindness. Because they're trying to prevent you from the inevitable result of the path that you're following. It's a similar thing that takes place when it comes to the warnings of the prophets. And I raise this because the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy are, are basically Isaiah identifying and calling out the people's sin, rebellion, and disobedience. And then he issues the warnings of what will happen if they continue on this course. Their their disobedience and rebellion against God resulted in their exile from their homeland. The people of God were in a pit of despair and any hope that they had was hanging on by a thread. They were suffering tragedy and they knew that everything that they were going through, all of the sufferings that they were facing, were their own fault. Have you ever been there? Where you suffer things and you know there's nobody else to blame, you can't pin it on anybody else, you know that it's all your fault. This is where Israel found themselves. However, after trudging through 39 chapters that largely consists of judgment and threat, the reader catches a ray of light that breaks through the dark clouds of judgment. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression of who God is and what God is about. And we begin to hear a shift in the message in Isaiah 40. Take a look at verse 1. The Lord says to his messengers comfort comfort my people says your god given what the people had done and given who the people had become this is an absolutely stunning shift in the prophetic message and this stunning shift is all the more amazing in light of the ancient cultural backdrop now I did a little research and one of the things that i discovered was ancient ideas around comfort in both jewish and pagan contexts in this ancient time it was considered the duty of your family members or your neighbors to comfort you when you were disconsolate and if you lived far away well then you could send a letter to the person who was disconsolate. And what that means is we wound up with a bunch of evidence through these letters of comfort that give us insight into how ancient people thought about this theme. Now, here's what I learned. When these letters of comfort that have survived from that period, when we read them, the the ideas that we get around comfort sound like this they would say things like this don't lament too long it was thought that lamenting is useless and that people should set an example by mourning for a short period the disconsolate were encouraged in these letters to read philosophers or poetry Sometimes they were given assurances of immortality or the peace of eternal nothingness based upon the beliefs of the Comforter. But when we search these ancient letters of comfort, what we learn is that there was hardly ever any reference made to the gods comforting people. In these letters, we hardly ever find anyone who petitions the gods or prays to the gods requesting comfort. Comfort was not regarded as a divine function in this ancient cultural context. No deity was associated with doing the work of comfort. The idea of a God who comforts was virtually unknown in the ancient world. Do you see it? In the context of Israel's sin and rebellion, in the context where no other deity claimed any desire or willingness to comfort their devotees, the Lord tells his messengers in a most emphatic way, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And if you're a student of the Bible, what you notice is that God uses covenantal language, my people. Your God, that mutual belonging. And the reason why this is significant at the beginning of chapter 40 is because all through Isaiah 39, the Lord calls Israel those people because they're living like they don't know anything about the covenant. They're living like those people. But the fact that God calls them my people and and, and he says that he will be their God shows us that even if Israel departed from the covenant, the Lord says, I don't. I don't give up on my promises to my people. I don't fail to deliver on the word that I have given to my people. I am reliable, and I am the God who brings comfort. And that's why it's no mistake That throughout the entire prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah has a special name for God. He calls him the Holy One of Israel. And that is to say, to call God holy is to say there is nobody like him. He is utterly unique. Nobody loves like he loves. Nobody cares like he cares. Nobody comforts like he comforts. Now, up to this point, Israel had tried to find comfort in every other place. They were looking for love in all the wrong places. (laughs) If you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy, along with his contemporaries who were doing prophetic ministry, you can see that God's people had turned to false gods and idols but they found no comfort. They turned to sexual encounters, but they found no comfort. They turned to riches and they were willing to exploit and steal from the vulnerable and the poor and they still found no comfort. And if none of these things worked to bring them comfort, what makes us think that any of these things are gonna bring us comfort? They're not. They're a delusion. The Lord expresses his desire to comfort his people. But he also gives direction on the specific message that will actually comfort his people. Take a look at verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In this message, we can identify the central components of real comfort. And we're going to break this down a little bit, phrase by phrase. All right, let's begin with the first one. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Hebrew text, if you, if you go and read the Hebrew text... What it literally says is, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. The first component of real comfort is that it must address the heart. And this is where our modern searches for comfort run aground. We often try to address heart wounds with surface level treatments. But at a most basic level, if your treatment doesn't address the tangled mess within your heart, it will not give you lasting comfort. It may distract you for a little while. It may be a pleasant diversion for a moment, but it won't give you lasting comfort. You know what that's like? That's like if you have a headache and you tape an aspirin to your forehead. It's not going to do you any good. Unless it gets in you. And what we're seeing in this text is that the comfort that God gives, it gets to the heart. And that's why it is effective. But one thing I want to say while we're here is that we must recognize the difference between being comfortable and being comforted. There's a difference. Being comfortable is largely about your environment, your circumstances, your amenities, the fixtures on your life. Being comforted is about the heart. And what God has shown all through his story is that he can put his people in any kind of situation, and any kind of context, and they still be comforted. Because what he gives gets to the heart. Don't worry about being comfortable. Consider what it means to be comforted. Here we see that real comfort speaks to the heart, but let's keep it moving. The next part of the text says, And cry to her that her warfare is ended. Israel was a small nation surrounded by large national forces that were squeezing her and squeezing her. And it finally got to the point where they had to actually take up military action, but to no avail because they were defeated and they were dragged into exile. They were stripped from their homeland. They were taken away from their place. Have you ever been on a long work trip and had the feeling, man, I can't wait to get home? Well, imagine being forcibly taken from your home with no promise of ever getting to lay eyes on your home again. This is where Israel was. But the theme of exile in Scripture goes beyond physical estrangement from your place. It extends to describe life apart from God, who is our true home. And there's something like this idea at work in the story of the prodigal sons. When the younger son comes to his father and says, give me my inheritance, he goes off, the text says, into the far country. He self-exiles. And he wants to live life from underneath his father's oversight and rule He wants to do his own thing. He wants to live it up. He wants this version of freedom that's in his head. He wants good times and parties and going to the club and eating fancy meals and hanging out with swanky people. But before long, he winds up in the pig pen. I actually can't think of a better description of modern people than the younger son. Because we too, self exile. We leave the God who is our true home. We want to be up from under his rule and his reign. And we want to call our own shots. We want to pursue our own pleasures and live life on our own terms. We have actually lived with the mistaken notion that we're always inevitably making progress without reference to God. But... One brief look at the social scientific data and the daily news proves that we're not on an inevitable growth in progress. We are exiled from our true home, but we see here that real comfort brings us out of exile. The next phrase, take a look. He says, and cry to her that her iniquity... Is pardoned. Now, this is a jaw dropping statement in light of what we've discussed about what Israel had done and who they had become. The people were loaded down with sin, and this was the entire reason why they were in this situation in the first place. But over all the sin, over all the failure, over all the missteps, misdeeds, and mistakes, the Lord speaks a word of pardon. In our modern age, we wrestle a lot with shame and guilt, don't we? And shame has become more pronounced in the conversation these days, but we still bear a lot of guilt And there's actually really nothing we can't feel guilty about. Think about food. We feel guilty when we broke our diet. We feel guilty when we ate too many calories. Some of y'all may feel guilty for that late night run to shame eat McDonald's, right? You feel guilty. Food can make us feel guilty. Money can make us feel guilty. We can feel guilty about how much we make, how much we spend, how much we give or don't give. Money makes us feel guilty. Relationships can make us feel guilty. We feel guilty when we use our words and we hurt other people. We feel guilty. But then we feel guilty when we avoid the person that we hurt because we don't want to face our failure. We feel guilty for not calling enough, not answering the calls or the texts. We feel guilty for forgetting important dates and anniversaries. We feel guilty around our spirituality, no matter what our spirituality may be. We feel guilty about our performance as it relates to our spiritual convictions. When we don't show up, we feel guilty. When we're absent-minded about our faith, we feel guilty. When we fail to live up to standards, we feel guilty. When we realize that we're being hypocrites, we feel guilty. We see here that real comfort addresses our guilt, not by stuffing it, not by pretending it's not there, not by wishing it away, but by pardoning the sin that made us guilty in the first place. But then we move on to the next phrase. The Lord says, and cried to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This was a way of saying that the just judgment that hung over their heads was completed, it was over, judgment was finished. There was no more divine judgment hanging over them. This is an interesting concept for us to think about in our cultural context. Modern people have no love for judgment, right? How often have we heard it said, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And I usually think, and that's a comfort to you? (laughs) It's a comfort. You would rather be judged by God than by me? Strange. What we realize is that a lot of people say, you can't judge me. They recoil at the idea of someone passing scrutiny on their life because it reveals. It shows failure. And if, if we have such a reaction to the judgment of our peers or random people on social media... What do we suppose it's going to be like on that day when we face the judgment of God? The God who sees everything that we've done, who knows everything we've said, and even knows everything we've thought. It's a most discomforting thought that I will be held accountable by God for the life that I have lived. This is one of the messages of Advent, by the way. We look forward to the second coming of Christ and in the Nicene Creed, we say that the Lord is coming to judge the living and the dead. This is core to the Christian faith. God is just, so he must judge. Because justice and judgment are two different sides of the same coin. It is discomforting to think about the idea that God will judge us. And yet, if God could speak these words of comfort over Israel with all of their sins, with all of their failures, with all of the ways that they dropped the ball, then surely he can speak these words of comfort over us. The final component of real comfort is that it lifts the crushing weight of just judgment That hangs over us. God's message of comfort hits like nothing and no one else can because it speaks to the heart, it calls us out of exile, it addresses our guilt, and it lifts the just judgment that hangs over our lives. If any of these components is missing, then what you have is not real comfort. It's a distraction. It's a diversion. It's a temporary kind of thing. It's nothing real and substantive and lasting. Real comfort has to deal with the messed up things in life. And that's precisely what we see in God's message of comfort. We need to hear this message of comfort But the question is, how does this comfort become real for you and me? How do we lay hold of this comfort? The answer is that we lay hold of this comfort, not by trying harder, not by doing better, but by faith in the gospel. That's how we lay hold of this comfort, Think about the gospel. In his first advent, Jesus Christ came into this world not just as a messenger of God, but as the Messiah of God. As the king who could affect the comfort that he actually proclaimed over his people. Jesus is able to give real comfort because he speaks to our hearts. He speaks to our fears. He speaks to our insecurities. He He speaks his love over us to give us assurance that he is ours and we are his and nothing can separate us. That's comfort. Jesus calls us out of exile just as powerfully as he called Lazarus out of the grave. That's good news. That's the power in the word of the Lord. And in the gospel, Jesus willingly submits to exile so that he could bring us home to a father's love. In the gospel Jesus addresses our guilt by bearing it for us. He takes the cross and gives us his comfort. And what can comfort you more than the truth that Jesus knew all of the ways that you were going to fail In the past, he knew all of the ways you would fail in the future. He knows every corrupt and broken thing that goes on in your mind and your heart now. He knows your selfishness, your brokenness, your corruption, and yet he loves you still. What can comfort like the assurance that you can be completely known by the God of heaven and still be loved? That is something that prevents us from actually building relationships because we believe that if we reveal who we really are, there's no chance those people are going to accept us. So we hide and we pretend and we perform and we put on a smile. We do all the things because deep down inside, we have zero confidence that if they knew what we really, what we really were and who we really are, we, we have doubt that they would ever want to be our friend, would ever want to be connected to us. And yet Jesus says, I came for people like you. I didn't come for those who were well. It's the sick who need a physician. Jesus. Jesus knew all the ways you would fail. And yet, he still came for you. He still abides with you. He still fights for you. And he ever lives to pray for you. That's comfort. And finally, Jesus is able to make His comfort real to us because He lifts the just judgment that hangs over our lives. He lifts that judgment by absorbing it for us. In fact, Isaiah tells us only a few chapters later that He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon upon Him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Nothing and nobody can comfort like Jesus. And when Jesus comforts you, then he gives you the ministry of comfort. Which brings us to our second point, the ministry of comfort. Take a look at verses 3 through 5. The text reads like this. A voice cries. on the very first page of Mark's Gospel and in the third chapter of Matthew's Gospel. These evangelists quote this verse and they apply it to the ministry of John the Baptizer. John engaged the people of his place to prepare them for the advent of Jesus Christ. And what I would suggest to you is that though John the baptizer occupied a special place in redemptive history, his ministry is one that is given to every Christian to prepare the way for the Lord. We too are to cry out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. If you go to the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us that our life in this world is like Israel in the wilderness. We, we're on our way to Canaan. We will one day cross the Jordan into the land of milk and honey, but right now we're in the wilderness. But the call that God issues to his people is to prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness so that our group gets bigger and bigger on our way to the promised land so that other people can get access. In Isaiah's context, we have a dual image that's taking place in these verses. That every mountain shall be made low, every valley raised up, the rough places shall be made a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. There's a dual image going here. It's not only a picture of the pathway being cleared for the Lord to come to his exiled people. It's that same road that they travel on their way out of exile. Do you see the image here? This is what John the Baptist's ministry was. And this is the ministry that has been given to us. What does that look like? How do we prepare the way for the Lord? Well, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is begin with yourself. Begin with yourself. It begins with repentance. Identifying the ways in which you are running from God. The ways in which your heart is longing for things outside of what God's best is for you. To name your sins. To bring them to the Lord. God was rightfully mad at our rebellion, but he is never mad at our return. That's what repentance is. It's turning from your sin back to the God who loves you and cares for you and provides for you. It's turning back to the God who is good and faithful. Engage. How do you prepare the way for the Lord? It begins with repentance. The next thing I want to encourage you to do as it comes to preparing the way for the Lord in your own heart is to tell the truth about your wilderness trials. I think, I think it is a sad thing when in the body of Christ, people are going through things, and when people say, how you doing? They say, I'm good, I'm good. Everything's good, everything's cool. Rather than being honest about your wilderness struggles. The reason why I think it's sad and also tragic is because when you conceal what you're really going through, you're robbing the Lord of his glory. And here's how. If nobody knows that you're going through a thing right now, then when the Lord sees you through, they're not going to be able to know it. It's not until you let people in and you share your heartaches, your frustrations, your trials, your tears, that your people can bear you up Speak God's words of life to you, pray for you, and then celebrate you when the Lord delivers. I know there are stories in here that we have to celebrate. Be honest about your trials in the wilderness. Next, I want to encourage you to resist busyness. When we live lives of busyness, it allows our hearts to get cluttered. Our hearts get cluttered and we can no longer discern whether we're hearing the voice of the Lord through the scriptures or if it's our own self-speak. We no longer are clear about the things that are really going on in our lives. Busyness is often a cover for the things that are off in our lives. When you're busy... You're not slowing down to commune with the Lord. When you're busy, you have no margin for mission. When you're busy, relationships get put on the side. When you're all kinds of bad things happen in your life when you are busy, by all means, be active, but resist busyness. Get in the Word, meditate, pray. And finally, one way that you can prepare the way of the Lord in your own heart is to sing. When you get up in the morning, tune your heart to sing his praise. When you're in the shower, I've been amazed sometimes I can get up, I can have my coffee. If I don't get some worship music on as I'm getting ready for my day, I don't hit my day in the same way. Sometimes that's the very means by which the Lord ministers to me and he gets my mind right so that I can go into my day prepared to serve faithfully, to love people, to bear with others in patience, to care about things that I should care about. That's when the Lord keeps his word fresh on my mind. And that's why in our worship, in our network churches, we sing song. We don't just preach the gospel. We sing the gospel. Because there are certain ways that music can get the word of God into our hearts in ways that mere words don't. And when we pick these songs, when we sing the gospel, we're not just out to prepare you for life. We're out to prepare you for death. Because one day you will have to walk that road. And on that day, I want you to be able to sing the songs of expectation That you are are going to sleep in death and wake up in glory. Just like you're going to lay your head on your pillow tonight and, Lord willing, wake up in the morning. That's what death is going to be like for you. In the gospel, Jesus has turned death into an Uber ride to glory. Jesus can turn a funeral into a fiesta. That's the kind of power he has. And that's the kind of comfort he gives. Sing. Prepare the way for the Lord in your own heart. But then it goes outward, family. We prepare the way for the Lord in the way we engage our neighbors. This is our calling with respect to our neighbors and our coworkers and our roommates and our friends. We prepare the way for the Lord by showing up in the lives of our neighbors. Expressing interest, curiosity, good listening, and remembering. Remembering remembering the things that they shared so that we can check up on them and show them that they really matter. That they really matter to you, that they're important, that you see deep value in them. It's really crucial that we're this kind of people in the world. If you don't know what to talk about, here's a little trick that I use when I'm not sure how to make conversation with someone. Imagine that you had to write their biography. What don't you know about them that you would need to know in order to write a good biography of that person. What do they love? How were they raised? What were their parents' situation like? Did they have siblings? Did they go to school? What were their hopes and dreams? What makes them wake up in the morning alive and ready to hit the day? What are they trying to be all about? What are they they aiming at? What are their goals? What excites them? What are their hobbies? Be curious. We prepare the way for the Lord by speaking up. We We prepare the way for the Lord by showing up. We prepare the way for the Lord by speaking up. And this is to say that the ministry of comfort is a ministry of truth-telling. We don't have time to lie to our neighbors, to conceal the truth about the world. We believe that the Bible is the true story of the world. And people need to know And if you want to understand what what it looks like to prepare the way for the Lord, look at John the Baptist. What did he say to the people? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around. Come back home. It's so much better underneath the wing of the Father than out there in the cold trying to take care of yourself, trying to belong to yourself. That's exhausting because once you feel like you belong to yourself and you have to make a name for yourself, you can never get off of that roller coaster. It's exhausting. It's dehumanizing. So we must tell the truth to our neighbors. We must have a greater regard for the reputation of our Lord than we do for our own reputations or wonder on what people might think about us. People might think we're crazy. Hey, guess what? Have you watched the news? Everybody looks crazy right now. It's okay to be a little crazy for Jesus, okay? (laughs) Let your light shine before men so that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't put it under a bushel. Don't bury what God has given you. Let it go. Let it fly. Trust that the Spirit is at work and that he will do the heavy lifting. Remember, nobody in this room, if you look around, was more likely to make it into the kingdom. No one was more likely. We were all a dramatic rescue mission that Jesus pulled off. (laughs) We prepare the way for the Lord by preparing our tables for our neighbors. The ministry of comfort is also a ministry of hospitality. Do you understand that some people will make their way to the Lord's table beginning at your table? Do you know that in an age where people are trying to build higher walls, that God wants his people to build longer tables? This is how we prepare the way for the Lord. Open your tables. We prepare the way for the Lord by doing all the good we can, by all the means we can, in all the ways we can, in all the places we can, at all the times we can, to all the people we can, for as long as we can, says John Wesley. We prepare the way for the Lord by sharing our testimony of how the Lord has comforted us in our trials and hardships. And finally, we prepare the way for the Lord Through the work of prayer and i intentionally call it the work of prayer just like the church historic did it's work but it's worth it and there are some people who will make it into the kingdom through your prayers because god has ordained it to be so he has appointed it that way pray with expectation and pray to prepare the way for the lord maybe a prayer that you pray is this May their false comforts and discomforts lead them to real comfort by faith in Christ. Maybe that's a prayer you pray for your neighbor. The gospel redefines our entire way of thinking about comfort. On this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's people know that comfort food is found at the Lord's table. We know that the only real comfort zone is being in Christ. We know that creature comfort can only come from the creature's creator. We see the preaching of the gospel as real comfort advertising. You might be able to get southern comfort down on the corner, but when Jesus comes back, he's bringing global comfort. And on that day, when he returns, Jesus will book our permanent stay in the real comfort in, the kingdom of God. And if you want to rest from your pretending and your performing, you can cover up with the righteousness of this comforter, Jesus Christ. The glory of the Lord has been revealed. So let us join the Apostle Paul in blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ The Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that it would take root in our hearts and that it would grow and bear fruit 60, 80, 100-fold. I pray that the seed of the word would not be stolen from your people through the enemy or through the cares of life, but that it would sink root and grow through us. Help us to be faithful to the call that you have given us to receive your comfort and then to be ministers of your comfort. We ask that you would give us the grace to walk in your ways. As a community of comforters, we ask it in Jesus' name.